everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, Episode 4, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by legendary character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, and I'm the host of the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined today by one of the main actors in Christopher Nolan's Memento, Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> How are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great, David. Boy, what a nice mention of that movie. What a great movie. I think I've decided that to introduce you, I'm going to just pull out one of your many credits uh, <laughs> at the beginning of every single episode. And, you know, uh, I remember when when I got that script. I got that script of Memento, and it was a lot bigger than most scripts you get, movie scripts you get. And I re- remember sitting upstairs in the bedroom. I started reading it and reading it. And about halfway through it, I was going like, this is one of the most remarkable things I've ever read in my life. It better have a good ending or I'm going to be really pissed. And I kept reading it and I got to the end and I remember throwing that script across the room and yelling to my wife downstairs, I think I just read the best screenplay I've ever read in my life to this point. And that screenplay was exactly like the movie. I mean, it was a blueprint for that movie with this scene is repeated exactly the way Teddy and Leonard were before. It, should, it was amazing just to read that. Phenomenal work. Why did you throw it across the room, though? Usually people do that when they're angry with the script. I was so happy. <laughs> Sometimes when I eat a dessert and I eat like a cream brulee and it's so good, I have to just stand up in the restaurant and, and th- squeal and... And throw the plate plate across the restaurant. Yeah, (laughs) it was so good. Well, in any case, if you're just tuning in for the first time, we should just let you know that the Tobolowski Files can be found at TobolowskiFiles.com. You can find all of our episodes there. And please subscribe to us in iTunes or your favorite RSS reader. Uh, But, Stephen, you know, we were sort of talking about how we would record today's episode, and we're going to do it uh, Wednesday morning. And then you said, oh, wait, no, David, I I actually have a a gig I have to do. Uh, And so now we're recording on Wednesday, sort of afternoon, evening. Uh, What was that gig that you were were talking about? It it was one of those jobs that falls out of the sky. This was for a a cartoon show. I'm not sure what channel it's on. It's Glenn Martin DDS. So maybe the people there know it's it's on MTV or or, or I don't want to say the wrong name because it it's a very Simpson like cartoon show very very funny Kevin Nealon Catherine O'Hara uh, are some of the voices it's it's really funny and they called me up last night and said hey could you come on could you come on down and do a voice and I was thrilled to it very very funny show and I'm looking forward to it I believe we 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 do the actual recording on. Tuesday of this coming week. So, uh, thumbs up on that one. I By the way, Glenn Martin DDS, uh, a stop-motion animated series on Nick at Night. Just so our Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I was when I was uh, driving back from Santa Monica this morning, they had the news on the radio about how the breast check, all the breast check things were changed. I I don't know who the people were, but they said the protocol that's been used for years that women should not do self-exams, and for years and years, decades and decades, this is the way we're going to stop breast cancer, that women should not do the annual mammograms. It does more harm than good. You should wait. And it got me thinking about today's show because one of the themes of today's stories is 
how on earth do we know what we know? And we're battling all the time these forces of science and these forces of intuition, and we never know what we know. There's another powerful force that was behind this week's show, and that is that it is my mom's birthday, my dear, dear mother's birthday, and I wanted to do a couple stories dedicated to her. And I found this to be true. I I don't know if any of you do, but a lot of times in life, I've found that we don't choose our memories, but our memories choose us. And I have no idea why certain thoughts are associated with certain people and they stick in my mind. And, and the thing that always surprises me is that they're not the obvious thoughts. And I have an example for you. I will always remember the night in Boston when my dad punched a bus. Now, obviously, people will remember their fathers for a lot of reasons. Uh, my dad taught me the alphabet. He would give me a different letter on a small chalkboard every day on his way to work. And then I would ask for something that became known as the puffed cheek kiss. He would, he would fill his mouth up with air and puff his cheeks out. And then I would kiss his cheeks while he let the air out with a sort of expelling air but not quite farting sound. And that, of course, made me laugh. And I would demand that we do it again and again and again until he protested and say, hey, I've got to go to work. Uh, I also remember when I was 10, my dad took me to the Lions Club midget go-kart races and put me in charge of the concession stand. I was 10, and I was in charge of the concession stand. Now, you want to talk about the fox watching the hen house. This was not a good judgment move on his part. There I was, unsupervised, in charge. (laughs) I mean, I'm 10 years old, and I'm taking in money. And dispensing candy bars, popcorn, corn dogs, unlimited cola, and soft-serve ice cream. I think I went through about a half a box of those soft-serve cones within the first hour. In fact, I was my biggest customer, and I was free. The head of the event, and if we did a TV movie of this, it would be played by Craig T. Nelson. He came over red-faced and started yelling at me. He scolded me, and I don't remember ever being scolded by an adult man other than my father or a teacher before this, so it was kind of a traumatic experience, but it was good preparation for television directors, but I didn't know that at the time. He told me he was going to count cones, and if we were short, I would have to pay him for each ice cream eaten, and my dad was embarrassed. I'd let him down. I was scared. I was ashamed. For about seven minutes, and then I figured out I could get around the prohibition on eating ice cream by just avoiding cones altogether and dispensing the soft serve directly into my hand. No cone, no trail, no problemo. Now, if you were to ask me at a party or on the street, what is the event I remember most about my dad, it would be the snowy night in Boston. We were crossing the street, and a bus was waiting for the light, and it inched forward just a little bit into the crosswalk, and my dad whirled around, and he punched it. He punched the bus. And to the bus's credit, it did stop, not from the force of the blow, but I think the shock of the bus driver that some man would go out of his way and give a right hook to the bus's grill. Now, why has that memory chosen me? This is the question. Out of all the little and the big, and the wonderful, and the sad things I could remember about Dad, why this moment? 
Bertolt Brecht, the playwright, in writing Mother Courage, spoke about creating the gestus for a character in a play. Now, the gestus was what he called the characterological gesture. It was the single external act that represented the hidden inner life. And maybe that swing at the bus was my dad's gestus. And possible candidates for the meaning of that gesture could be my dad was always fighting against things much bigger than himself. Uh, his willingness to protect his family at any cost. His hatred of mass transit. I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. In the Talmud, which are the Jewish holy books, which are second in importance only to the Bible, it suggests that you have to use great care in interpreting some dreams, that often the explanation of a dream is more powerful than the dream itself, and the interpretation can become true even if the dream was wrong. So that's the caution I'm going to use and refrain from trying to define why this bus memory and dad is so important to me, but it's enough to say that it is. And now my mother. I've got two strong memories of my mother. The first was from my 27th birthday. I flew in from California where I was trying to get some sort of real acting work. I was currently working at children's theater in the public school system. So I took off the sombrero for a few days and flew into Dallas for the big celebration. And we, we had a sort of ritual for birthdays. The birthday boy or girl would be taken out to eat at a favorite restaurant. And traditionally, I think like most families, we went to a very narrow range of eateries. Our family was enamored of the all-you-can-eat restaurant. Texas is very big on the all-you-can-eat. And the idea is very similar to a cattle trough. You come in, you pay one price, and you eat until you rupture your peritoneum. They had the shed, which was all-you-can-eat steak. And they had Pedro's, which was all-you-could-eat Mexican, and then big Chinese restaurant, which was all-you-could-eat Chinese. The shed had recently been busted for serving what the waiters called retreads. Now, these were steaks <laughs> that were on other people's plates, but they were not eaten. So rather than waste the food, they just took the slightly used steak and put it on your plate, rewarmed it, and voila, retread. That was the risk you ran if you went to the shed. And I, I never thought the idea of getting retreads was really that bad. For me, it was like eating at home. You would just wait until your sister got up from the table to get something to drink. You would take something off of her plate. You would eat it before she got back. No harm, no foul. Pedro's, the all-you-can-eat Mexican, was worse. They got busted for serving dog food in the enchiladas. So we had to stop going there. With the temporary closure of Pedro's and the bad rep of the shed, all of the all-you-can-eat diners headed for big Chinese restaurant. And they were swamped. And I, and I thought, what is the good of a big Chinese buffet if you can't get to it? And there was an eerie time travel element involved with eating lots and lots of Chinese food with all the fat people now eating at the big Chinese restaurant. It was kind of a time warp thing where you could see the present and the future at the same moment, like when you're standing at a urinal peeing and drinking a beer at the same time. Th there was something unsettling about eating all you can eat with lots of 350-pound men and women. So I decided to buck tradition. I decided for my birthday I would not go to an all-you-can-eat 
I decided to go to Vincent's Seafood Restaurante. Now, Vincent's was about as swanky a place as I'd ever seen in Dallas. And this is a slight digression. When I was a young man, my father never gave me the sex talk, but he did give me the restaurant talk about what restaurants to avoid because they will overcharge you. And the list went something like this. Any restaurant with linen tablecloths. Any restaurant where the waiters wore jackets. Any restaurants that had an E at the end of the word restaurant. Any restaurant where they charged you extra for iced tea. And let me tell you, Vincent's had all of them. But what made my mom almost keel over was when I ordered an appetizer. I could have been the first Tobolowski in history ever to order an appetizer. At all-you-can-eat places, the appetizer was bread. And they gave it to you for free and they kept it coming. But at Vincent's, I ordered a half a dozen oysters on the half shell. As far as my mom was concerned, this was not the act of a rational mind. I'm sure she chalked it up to my being an actor or the corruption that comes from living in California, and she was probably right on both counts. I want to clear that up for the record. They brought the oysters on a bed of rock salt. I offered mom one. She looked at me as if I'd handed her a bucket of snot. She declined. I ate my oysters dipped in red sauce in silence. And while we were waiting for our main courses to come, my mom reached over and started grabbing empty oyster shells off of my plate and stuffing them in her purse. I was going, what are you doing? And she said, I'm taking the oyster shells. I'd go, why? She said, I'm taking them home. If we're going to pay $5 for what amounts to a plate of salt, I'm not going to waste the shells. I said, what do you mean waste the shells? You can't use the shells. Nobody uses the shells. They have oyster liquid on them. I mean, how how are you going to use the shells? Mom says, well, I'll make a soap dish out of them. A soap dish? We don't need a soap dish. Nobody takes the shells home to make a soap dish. Mom goes, well, I can make buttons out of them. Buttons? Who makes buttons? You've never made a button in your life. And don't you need some kind of button-making machine? We just buy buttons at the dime store for $2. Leave the shells. Mom, put the shells back. If you take the shells, everyone is going to think you're crazy. Grudgingly, she returned the shells to my plate of salt. Now, I have no idea why that memory is so ingrained in my mind. Mom was the epitome of wackiness in a very good-hearted, well-meaning way. My brother Paul told me at the time where he had a one-hour layover at the Dallas airport, and Mom drove out to see him. And in the brief meeting, this was pre-9-11, she brought him out to the car, tied a tablecloth around his neck, gave him a haircut, fed him his favorite dinner of pot roast, and then brought the family cat out for him to pet quickly before he had to rush back into the airport and be on his way to Austin. Well, some 20 years later, I was on another trip to Dallas. Here's another memory. I was shooting the movie called The Operator. And this is a terrific indie film if you haven't seen it. It was written and directed by John Dichter. My mom volunteered to do baby duty with my four-year-old son, William, while I was busy shooting. She took him to Lakeshore Park in the Turtle Creek area. William loved turtles, so the chance of him seeing a turtle at Turtle Creek were pretty high. When I got home from the shoot that, that day, I found that mom and William were very excited in the living room. Mom told me, 
we were walking through the park along the creek, and there were so many ducks and swans, and we found an egg. Mom led me to this makeshift hatchery, which she had put together with Dad's reading lamp, an old Easter basket, and some shredded newspaper. Mom told me she'd been turning the egg every hour or so because she thought that's what you were supposed to do to help it hatch. And William nodded with a certain degree of authority that that was right. You had to turn the egg. So that evening, we all took turns turning the egg. I was shooting for about a week more. That was seven days. It was a week spent in egg turning, egg checking, egg speculating. Mom would get up through the night to turn the egg. I would lie awake at night, absolutely certain that one morning we would wake up to find some kind of mallard on the breakfast table. William was constantly talking about the egg, that we had to make certain that when the baby was born, we didn't touch it because that would put human smell on it and no other birds would come near him. And I asked him, then why in God's name did you take the egg in the first place? Because taking the egg from the creek put human smell on the egg. And now we're stuck. If it were to hatch, we would have a human-smelling bird that would be lonely all of its life or that mom and dad would be stuck raising some sort of wild (laughs) bird in the backyard, at which point dad piped in quietly or eating it. That didn't help. William was very upset. Mom was feeling guilty. I told William and mom there was only one solution. We had to get the egg back to the creek before it hatched so its mother could find it and take proper care of it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mom and William came with me to the creek to find the area where the egg was discovered. And it was a very busy day. There were lots of picnickers, lots of hand holders, lots of bike riders, very few birds. Mom and William became unsure as the exact area where they snatched the egg. William was now upset that if we just put this egg on the ground, the mother bird would not find it and it would be tantamount to bird murder. So we drove home with the egg again. It went back into the nest, and our final days in Dallas, the routine continued. William felt sure at one moment he saw the egg moved. I don't think it did. Well, the day arrived, we had to go back to Los Angeles. William wanted the egg to come back with us. Again, a reminder, this was pre-9-11. Mom hinted that that was probably the best thing to do. So I called my wife, Annie, at home and told her we were bringing back a charge. She wanted to know if it was alive. I said, sort of. We got back to Los Angeles and took over from mom and built a makeshift incubator using my son Robert's reading lamp, shredded cloth and newspaper in a small basket. William explained to her about turning the egg in the human smell. Anne sighed and went to look up the gestation period of various ducks and geese to get an idea how long this period in our lives could last. Time dragged on. After five weeks... We were both pretty sure that this egg was a goner, but we were unsure as to what to do. We decided to throw the egg away, and if there was some sort of crisis, we would tell William that we took the egg to the Los Angeles River, and we saw a family of ducks, and we put the egg by the water, and when we left, the ducks were waddling over toward the egg. In other words, we were going to lie, right? Well, on the way to the trash bin, the egg was dislodged, And it fell onto the concrete driveway and it cracked. And lo and behold, we discovered it was a hard-boiled egg from someone's lunch. For six weeks, 
we had guarded, warmed, turned, protected, took field trips with, flew cross-country with, spent sleepless nights fretting over someone's lunch. I called mom with the news. She took it in stride, silently portraying that the time she had spent protecting the dream of her grandchild was indeed time well spent. Again, I have no idea why out of the thousands of days and troves of memories and foundations of far more significant moments seemed to recede graciously before the memory of my mother and William and the egg. And if I were a reader of dreams in Talmudic times, I would venture this guess. I would say that both of these memories of mom show a common thread of a woman who had a close relationship to the miraculous. Someone who was unafraid of making buttons out of oysters and wild birds from picnic baskets. For my brother Paul, she could turn the front seat of an Oldsmobile into a family home complete with cat and pot roast. She was a sort of alchemist who maybe on occasion could spin common cloth into gold. And it was my silent pledge to her to always endeavor to be the latter. I'm always amazed and confused when the government appoints a committee to get to the bottom of something. In the political world, there's a comfort in always putting that thing we call certainty in the hands of somebody else. And it's understandable because sometimes everything you know is wrong. Uh, my son went to a co-op preschool, and this was outdoors in a fenced-off area at a city park, and all of the parents took turns being teacher's assistants, and in translation, what that meant was we washed hands, we were taking to the potty, and we kept the little ones from hitting each other with folding chairs, like the WWF. There was one five-year-old boy who had a regular routine. He would arrive at school, he would run into the toy shed, and emerge five minutes later in a dress, feathered hat, and pearls. He would sling a purse over his shoulder and start pushing a baby carriage around. The teacher never said a thing about it. None of the kids ever said a thing about it. They just kept running around throwing dirt at one another. And none of us teachers' assistants ever said a thing about it. We would just look at each other. But in that eye contact, in that millisecond of actual time, entire volumes of information were exchanged. And in that exchange came the precious commodity we call certainty. We were all certain that we knew all about this little boy, his past, his present, and his probable future on Project Runway. One day, the little fellow was in a corner of the schoolyard trying on some new jewelry and a pair of heels that matched his purse when his mother sat down on the bench next to me. She smiled and sighed. Her voice was filled with emotion. It's so dear. Look at him. It's amazing. I said, yeah, amazing. She continued, he's our miracle child. See, we had a daughter. 
She died when she was 11 months old. It was the end of me. My husband and I were inconsolable. We thought we would never be able to live through it. We always kept our daughter's room just as it was. And then I got pregnant again and we had a boy. And when he was old enough to crawl, he went down the hall and pushed open our daughter's door. He would spend hours in there playing and laughing and talking. Eventually, he would go into her closet and her drawers and pull out all of the clothes and start trying them on. And I knew it was the spirit of my daughter telling us she was still with us. And whenever I see him at school putting on those dresses, I know she's here too. She's with us every day. It's a miracle. I took a breath. You could have put me in a room for a hundred years with a typewriter and a million monkeys, and I would not have come up with that life, that history, that story. And right, I'm not sure of how much of a miracle it was. And whatever your read on it is, be it a scenario for a Hallmark movie or a Twilight Zone or just another large file in a social worker's office, the operative words here are, I wasn't sure. Certainty was gone, and everything I thought I knew was wrong. And we're bombarded constantly by supposed facts that fly across the Internet at blistering speeds, seducing us with that thing we like to call certainty. Don't get me wrong. I like certainty as much as the next guy. But I'm starting to think of it not so much as the bedrock we need to build our lives on, but it's kind of more like Fritos a comfort food that's best taken in small doses while drinking beer and watching the game. An area that specializes in certainty is science. And it's funny how much trust we put in science and a seemingly endless hope for the future when its track record throughout history has been so bad. The problem with science is that it not only tries to describe the observable, like the tides and the height of mountains, but also the unobservable. I was reading a science magazine that claimed that it is a fact that human beings send out a DNA message through their eyes of 33 different sexual characteristics within a fraction of a second upon meeting a potential mate, including their body characteristics, sexual preferences, and ranges of desire. I mean, it's believable. This could explain why I almost never had a date in high school or college. It also meant it was impossible for me to hide from women that I possessed the love handle gene. The article was trying to explain the science behind love at first sight, that it was not an emotional thing at all, but rather it was an amazing form of genetic communication that established sexual compatibility. At the bottom of it all, they were asking us to trade one invisible thing for another invisible thing. With certainty, you trade in love and we will give you genetics. I've come to the belief that in our lives, we have to accept some form of the invisible with certainty. Some are easy, like gravity. Gravity always existed even when people didn't know what it was. Its existence is not dependent on us being aware of it. It just existed. Cavemen accepted that if they dug a hole deep enough, a mammoth would fall into it and dinner is served. Other things are not so easy. Since the whole truth is a thing that's not always available to us, we as human beings have come up with an alternate system, intuition. 
Intuition also tells us many things in the blink of an eye. It told me there was something wrong with my front door. When I came back from a New Year's party, I opened it. I found my entire house ransacked. It told me to take a kitty from a rescue cat woman because of the look in that kitty's eye. And, and I was right. It turned out to be an excellent kitty. Okay, I never get phone calls from Judy. Never. She's my sister-in-law. And I was on my way to exercise class when my legs started vibrating. I pulled out my phone and I saw the digital ID saying Judy's cell. In the blink of an eye, my blood ran cold. That's when I became aware of the certainty that bad news travels fast. I answered the call. Stephen, it's Judy. Your mother's had a heart attack. I said, I'll, I'll be on the next plane. When I got to Dallas, mom was in the ICU. She was asleep. I had brought my book. I brought a portable radio figuring it was going to be a long day. And as I sat there talking with dad, I was remembering back a few months earlier, my last trip to Dallas. Mom had been developing Alzheimer's disease over the past few years. And I don't know enough about it to know what stage she was at. But she had not been able to read for a long time. That was one of her loves. She couldn't read because she couldn't remember the story or the characters. And in the evenings, her memory traveled in about a 60-second loop. She would ask me if I wanted some grapes or some hot tea and if the temperature in the house was too hot or too cold for me. And then she would ask me again and again and again. And I would get impatient and I would ask her politely, not lovingly, to sit down. And as awful as that trip was a few months ago, sitting now in this hospital room, I would have given anything to be back in our living room with her asking me about grapes and tea. She didn't wake up that day. I read, listened to the radio, talked to dad. My brother Paul came by and we sat grimly. Paul is a doctor and he would occasionally look at the monitor, which was providing readouts of all of her vitals, her heart, her blood pressure, blood chemistry. He pointed out the numbers that we were looking for, and science had reared its head. I was now fixated on the screen, looking for positive changes in the numbers. We went back to the house for a break before the evening watch, and even though there were three grown men walking around the living room, there was an emptiness there that was palpable, something invisible. We went back about 9 o'clock in the evening. We were going to check in on mom and then go out to eat. We were discussing Mexican versus Italian versus cheap Italian when a buzzer went off and nurses started running. And they ran into my mother's room. And faster than the speed of light, we all understood something terrible was happening. She had had another heart attack. They kept us out of the room while they performed emergency procedures, and I was certain at that point that we were not going to have dinner at all. After about an hour, her doctor came out to talk to us. He said that she had stabilized, that her heart was beating normally again, and he would monitor her throughout the night and that we could go home and get some rest. And we would keep our fingers crossed that she would be better in the morning. The fingers crossed bit was a disturbing lack of certainty from a man of science. The next morning, we came to the hospital, I guess it was about seven in the morning. We got off the elevator and one of the nurses looked at me and in that look, 
a thousand pieces of information were transferred through her eyes. And in less than a second, I assembled it and it said, it was a bad night. It's going to be a bad day. In that instant, I knew I wasn't going to be sitting in a hospital room reading my book. Today was the day that my mother was going to die. We rounded the corner and there was her doctor. He was looking at us with what I recognized is a golfer's smile. Uh, a lot of times when a golfer makes his putt, he has a smile that turns down in the corners of his mouth like a partial frown, I think because he knows that there's a water hazard on the next hole. He told us that it was a bad night, that we should go in and say our goodbyes, that we may only have a few minutes. We walked in, and she looked so small in that bed unconscious. And we were all fixated by the monitor showing a greatly weakened heart along with a lot of other numbers that meant nothing to me but made my brother raise his eyebrows and look at me with a terrifying certainty. My sister was flying in from South Carolina where she worked at the university and our hopes had been reduced. Now we just wanted mom to live long enough for Barbie to get here. And in my heart, I knew I would have given anything to be sitting in that hospital room yesterday reading Charles Dickens with mom sleeping, thinking about eating Italian food and wishing I were back in the living room a few months earlier smiling and saying with kindness that the room was comfortable, the tea was good. Then my cell phone rang. It was my sister. She was at the airport. She was on her way to the hospital. I told Paul that Barbie is here, she will be at the hospital within the hour. And this is when I had my miracle. My mom's heart started beating again, just like it did yesterday. And the doctor came rushing in the room, and this was unexpected. His face showed surprise. He wanted to make sure his equipment was working right. It was true. Mom had stepped back from the brink. Barbie, my sister, got there. We all hugged. And then something very unexpected happening in this series of unexpected events. We all started, <laughs> we started laughing. Believe it or not. Who could figure it out? We laughed. And we started laughing and telling mom stories. We, mom and the cat, mom and the roast beef, mom and the basketball player. And, and these stories are endless and hilarious. I'll probably talk about them at some point on this webcast. And while we were all there together, all laughing, mom's heart stopped. Not all at once, but over a couple minutes. And the laughter stopped. And we were all transfixed by the television monitors that were showing a flat line with an occasional inconsequential blip. It was like being at a baseball game these days with the Jumbotron and nobody's watching the field, just watching the playback on the TV screen. The doctors and nurses rushed in again and watching the screen, I would have given anything, anything for the weak pulses we had 20 minutes ago. And to tell you the truth, I am not certain that my miraculous moment was a miracle to all, at all and that mom stayed alive long enough until we could all be together and then left when she heard us laugh and knew we would be all right. Not certain at all. And whatever your read on this could be, whether it be a scenario for a Hallmark movie 
or a twilight zone, or just in another series of coincidences that make up a life, I am certain of something invisible in that room at the moment when we were all together. Something powerful, something faster than the speed of light that for a moment was in our midst and in our hearts. That was The Alchemist, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, very powerful stuff today. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the creative process for, for thinking up uh, how to tell those stories? Well, I, I can a little bit, and, and I think part of it is a big thank you to you and the guys at Slash Film for giving me this forum, because I realized I probably never would have really written down these stories for mom had it not had the venue of the Tobolowsky files. Uh, they asked me to speak at mom's funeral, and I think I told the story of the egg. But I couldn't really tell the story about her and the oyster shells, and I couldn't talk about that last day. But the Tobolowsky files gave me the, the, the venue to tell the story. And, and I have to tell you, David, I've been getting a lot of emails from people talking about the Tobolowsky file saying that in their life now they're beginning to see the stories in their lives and how important it is to write it down and remember it and how much it's mattered and it's helped them connect with other people in their lives and, and that's a great thing. Uh, but in honor of my mom and in honor of her birthday today, uh, with love to her. Uh, well, Stephen, uh, can you tell people how they can email you uh, this week? If they'd like to reach you. Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, any comments, send to stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And I have learned from the emails, I need to spell it a little bit. It's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. And the last name is T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling, Y, not I. And... Uh, you can get a hold of me by email there. You can also reach me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And I want to encourage everyone listening right now, if you enjoy the Tobolowsky Files, head on over to tobolowskyfiles.com and uh, subscribe to the show using the links that are there because this is the last episode that's going to be in the Slash Filmcast podcast feed. We're splitting it off. It's going to become its own thing. So starting next week, we're going to be using our own podcast feed. And if you'd like to keep receiving episodes, again, head on over to tobolaskyfiles.com. Use the links to subscribe in iTunes and in RSS. 
Uh, finally, I just want to give a, a shout out to uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, uh, the DVD that inspired this entire podcast. Check it out at stbpmovie.com if you want to hear more of Stephen's stories. So guys, thanks for tuning in this week and a big thanks to Stephen for uh, sharing that intense and personal story. And have a good week, guys. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>